Thank you, Rich. Hi, everybody. Um, to begin, um, and especially for those that are listening but not watching, um, the sermon today is titled Idol Worship, I-D-Y-L-L. Now, some of you might be thinking, shouldn't there only be one L? Some of you are thinking, why is there a Y? Um, it's a different word than idol, I-D-O-L. Um, and I thought that people would just know what this word means, but I, I thought it was spelled differently um, until I Googled it. Um, and when I Googled it, what I found out, um, we're, we're talking today about worshiping idyllically. You know, if you have like an idyllic childhood you ever heard that, you know, like, oh, summers were the best. When I was a kid, every year we went to the blank and did the blank thing, and man, our summers were wonderful. Have you guys heard of that? Okay. Thank you for those of you at home nodding. Um, there's a thing about idyllic thoughts, though, um, and it, it's an extremely happy, peaceful, or picturesque episode or scene, but it's typically idealized or unsustainable. The idea behind it, like, so, so the best example, all of our students are back in school now. And all of our students who are back in school are like, oh, I hate being in school. But, like, in, in, in like, when they couldn't go to school because of COVID, they were like, I wish I could be in the school building right now. Just let me go back. And then, and then every summer, pre-COVID and post-COVID, I'm sure, um, students in the middle of the summer are like, there's nothing to do. So they miss school. And then they get to school and they start saying, I can't wait for summer. And that cycle doesn't change when we're adults. It's Labor Day weekend. Um, I am so excited to have a day off to mow, to edge, to take care of all the wood that's been sitting next to our garbage can for like three months, um, to take care of, we've got to figure out a stroller situation because Lucy is a monster toddler and doesn't fit in our stroller. We, the list of things I have to do, I'm not getting a break this weekend. And I just, we, we all think if we could just get to that point, and that's idyllic worship. We, we set our hope and our focus on a thing that we're just so, if this just happened, my life would be perfect. When our hopes are idyllically motivated, we are hoping for our own comforts. That's the reality here. Um, and by the way, some of you are like, Matt, normally there's like a fun starting point and we're just like jumping in. Um, and that's because it's Labor Day weekend, so we're here to work. Um, so the idea here, my life would be perfect if... And I, I can think of a million of these. I'm sure all of you could fill these in too. I went with some personal and some generic ones. My life would be perfect if my children were potty trained. I think that all the time. This is our new son, Levi. Um, and this is a, it's not quite a recent picture, um, but most of my pictures of him are with him sleeping in my arms. And so this is one of my favorite pictures. And I think, man, it will be nice when he's not blowing out and when, when he's potty trained. But then if I'm being honest, Lucy was in that stage of cute and just blowing out all the time for like three months and then she was she didn't want to take naps and my, while I held her and that went away and it never came back it might come back someday and like when Lucy gets potty trained that's just one more step towards independence where when we go to the playground she doesn't want me to hold her hand as we go up the slide each time and she doesn't want me there the whole time right so so I may say my life would be perfect if but when that happens I'll probably be thinking I remember 
when they were much smaller, right? Like we chase these things and they don't really get us there. My life would be perfect if I made more money. I think everyone says this all the time. Um, One of my favorite NBA analysts, Jalen Rose, talks about if you and Oprah saw 20 bucks on the street, she'd knock you over to get it. And his point is rich people will do anything to get another dollar just like poor people. We all think our life would be perfect if we had just a little bit more. Or maybe you're like, well, I have enough. And if so, good for you. But um, we think maybe if I got that promotion or that job, I have enough, but I don't have the respect I wish I had. Or my life would be perfect if my kids were set up for the future. For me, that right now, that's, we've got to already start planning what preschool Lucy will go to and what AAU soccer team she will play on as a three-year-old in order to make sure she gets a scholarship when she's 18. And then they get to college, and you go, oh, they got into a good college. But they really need to find that right special someone. And then they find that right special someone, and then you say, they really need to make sure they have a good job. And then you think, if they only lived closer, and then if only they had more grant. I hope you see this. Um, my life would be perfect if my spouse would listen to me. Um, some of you may think, if, if my spouse just, just understood me a little better, just followed me a little bit better, wouldn't everything just be perfect? I always think if I just had a vacation, if I just had a little time off. But then I go on vacation, you know what I do? I think about work. And then I go on vacation, I get done with vacation, I get back and think about, this vacation wasn't worth it because now I'm behind. Um, and then, and that, that's just life. My life would be perfect if COVID went away. Um, This one, I I bet a lot of people are like, Matt, that one might be true. And it's not. We had problems before COVID. We just can't remember them because it was so long ago, right? Things weren't perfect beforehand. I often have to remind myself, students, I love you. Your attendance patterns since COVID have been terrible. Your attendance patterns before COVID were terrible. So if I try and blame it on something, what am I really blaming it on? Finally, my life would be perfect if things went back to the way they were. That's, that's the other side of this. A lot of these are all future-focused. And a lot of us are stuck thinking, if I could just get that, if, 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 if I had that, my life would be perfect. And then at the same time, some of us are thinking, if I could just go back to that, my life would be perfect. And in this, we have this idyllic type of worship where we're setting our hope on things of this earth And ultimately, if you think logically about all of these and any other one you'd want to fill in, what we're doing in these is we're worshiping ourselves. Because what we think is, if I just had what I wanted, my life would be complete. And the problem is, we are not the source of our happiness. We are not the source of our completeness. When we live this way, we idolize ourselves. And I got to tell you, a world where everyone worshiped me would be a terrible world. And I think that's true of all of you as well. So today we're going to look at what is the true cost of idolatry. And I think we're going to have fun. The, the Bible story we're about to jump into is really fun. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open up to 1 Kings 16, somewhere around like verse 31. I can't remember, but it's like, it's like verse 31. Um, and we're, we're going to jump in in a moment, and we're going to look at a story of when Israel was so wrought with idols that the Lord used a prophet to draw them back to himself and how the Lord did that. And we'll see some implications for us today. And hopefully by the end of it, we'll see what the true cost of idolatry is and how we can step away from it. At this point, I'm going to pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for this day. Um, Lord, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that we can gather here today 
Um, We thank you that we can just spend time in your word, that we can spend time in your presence together, that we can worship you, and that we can consider how to better live our lives with you at the center. We thank you your son, or for your son, who is a perfect example of that, um, and we pray we would follow in his example that it would not be our wills but yours done, that we'd follow you in obedience. I pray you would be speaking through me today, these would be your words, not mine, and that you'd give us all ears to hear them, and that your spirit would be moving in this place. It's in your name we pray, amen. It's there. Verse 29. So, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Now, for those of you who don't know much about the history of Israel, there was a time where there was a king named Saul, and all Israel was united, all 12 tribes under King Saul. King Saul was a bad king, and then David came after Saul, and under David, all 12 tribes were united, and David was a good king. Even though he did some bad things, he did a lot of good things. He was a man after God's own heart. He wrote a big chunk of the book of Psalms. We, we hold him in very high regard. Jesus is from the line of David. After David, his son Solomon was said to be like the wisest man who ever lived pre-Jesus. Um, but but uh, Solomon was king. And Solomon, the, Solomon, the quote-unquote wisest man who ever lived, his son immediately split the kingdom in two because of how foolish he was. And so what happened was you had this kingdom of Israel that was 12 tribes that then became Israel 10 tribes and Judah 2 tribes. And Judah was the kingdom from the line of David. Israel was the bad, or not at, bad sometimes, good sometimes kingdom. Israel and Judah were both bad. But when we're in the book of Kings, what we need to know right off the bat is that one of the things that we're going to try and figure out is are these good or bad kings? And that should frame everything we read. So let's just keep going. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Ahab was a bad king. In fact, he was the worst king so far. And as if it had been a light thing for him to follow in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who was a bad king, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected for an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. So not only did he serve this other god, in the capital of the kingdom of Israel, he built a temple to Baal, Not only that, and Ahab made an Asherah, which is a type of pole that was used in cultic worship, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Bad king. Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe, first time we meet Elijah, and you've heard of Elijah, even if you've only read the New Testament. They're looking for a prophet like Elijah. John the Baptist, they said, was like Elijah. We're looking for an Elijah in the end times. There's all these pictures of Elijah that come up in the Bible. And this is the first time we meet him. We don't know anything about him except he's a Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, which we know very little about. And he says to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my words. Now, obviously, there's something wrong here. Because all of you right there should have gone, Oh! None of you did. None of you did. And you're sitting here like, well, why should we have done that? Well, if we understood what is being said here, we would go, the Lord's throwing the gauntlet down. But we're treating this passage in our modern 
language. We, we don't understand anything that just happened, but I'm going to get you there right now. We've we got to ask three questions. This is like the introduction. Elijah has just thrown down a gauntlet, and all of us don't even realize it's on the floor. So let's answer three background questions that'll get us there. The first thing we need to know in order to understand this passage on its terms is we need to know who is the audience for First Kings, the book we're in. And to know that, we need to know a few things. First, we need to know that First Kings and Second Kings are one book by one author, okay? And First Kings and Second Kings span from the beginning of the reign of Solomon to the end of Judah as a kingdom. And Israel and Judah both fall and all the Israelites wind up in exile. Now, the biggest implication here is for the Awana song where you sing, there are 66 books in the Bible. It's at least 65, and we could talk about that later. But, but we have all of them there. The reason First and Second Kings are split is because they were super long scrolls. Okay? But it's one unified story. So the, the, the audience of this story, if Second Kings end well after the exile of Israel and Judah... The audience of this story for kings are Jews who are either in exile or returning from exile. Does that make sense? So, so they're people who are grappling with the fact that our God said if we serve him and we follow him, we'll be in the land of Israel forever, and now they've been displaced from the land, and now an author has come up and said, I'm going to show you how through the theological history of the land of Israel, why this happened. So Jews in or returning from exile long after this story is told. Next, we need to know who is Baal. And some of you are going to be like, well, my old pastor used to say Baal. Um, and I would love to say Baal, but I'll forget halfway through and I'll say Baal. So I'm going to say Baal this whole time. So Baal was a god in the nations around Israel. He was a very prominent god in the Middle East at that time. And a very important thing we need to know about him is what he represented. He allegedly provided fertility of soil, so food for harvest. He allegedly provided kind of resurrection, but when we say resurrection, I don't want to tie it to what Jesus did, but it, he provided this life-death cycle. So what would happen is every year, Baal would bring rain when he came to life. And so then the crops would come and there would be life for the people for another year. And every fall at the harvest and every winter, he would die. And then he would come back to life and start the cycle over again. And, and so he allegedly provided fertility of soil, life and death, and he was also a God of rain and storms. We need to know that for this story because remember, remember Elijah said, it will not rain, nor will there be dew except by my word, says the Lord. Whoa, see, you guys see that now, right? Um, finally, we need to talk about why does God threaten a drought? And the smarty pants answer right now is, Matt, you just answered that when you told us who Baal is. He's a God of fruit, fertility of soil, resurrection, and rain. So Matt, you just told us that, but it's actually different than that. Um, you see, because God doesn't say, oh, you guys are worshiping this guy. I'm going to show you up. If we go back to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus 26, before the people of Israel ever entered the land God had promised them, God through Moses told the people this, you shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up figured stones in your land to bow down to it. Ahab has done all of that. For I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. He's built, a, he's literally built a temple in Samaria, the, the headquarters of his kingdom, to another God. 
He's doing everything the Lord told them not to do. Now, you may wonder about Sabbaths, because we haven't talked about Sabbaths, but I want to tell you that, that worshiping Baal was primarily an economic thing and probably a sexual immorality thing, but primarily an economic thing. You see, there's, there's this thing called the Sabbath, where Israelites were commanded, you, you work six days, you rest the seventh. And there's this thing called the Sabbath year, where you work six years and you let the land rest and you rest the seventh. And there's this thing called the year of Jubilee, where you, re- or you work and rest on a cycle for 49 years, and on the 50th year, everyone is given back the land that belongs to them, and you reset the entire nation of Israel. Israel was not a land where someone could amass massive economic growth because God said, I will provide everything you need. If you read the Old Testament carefully, if they would have followed God, they never even needed an army because God says, if you will obey my commands, one of you will chase a hundred, five of you will chase a thousand. You don't need an army. You don't need anything. You need me. But to the Israelites, they looked around and saw these nations that looked bigger and stronger than them and they said, well, what if we start worshiping a God who lets us work seven days a week? And by the way, that sounds stupid, but when you're thinking, how do we grow an economic might, you work more, right? And so that's what they did. And look what God says. If you will obey my commandments, if you will walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season. And the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. That's unfortunate that they're doing the exact, exact opposite here, right? And so when God threatens a drought, yes, it's to prove he's greater than Baal, but more than that, it's because God fulfills the word he says. God is not like, oh no, they like Baal, I better show Baal up. God is like, do you guys not remember what I said? And so now, you're all appropriately ready to go, ooh, with me. After this, now it's important, after this, Ahab didn't say, wait, 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 what, why? Ahab just ignored him. And Elijah, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah and says, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook and I have commanded the ravens there to feed you. Now, he goes there and I want to tell you all, part of what's interesting here um, is we talk about this story sometimes. Look, the Lord took care of Elijah But what's interesting is Elijah stays there right up until the moment where the water dries up in that brook. And and the reason for this is a drought doesn't happen overnight. I mean, it does. It quits raining. But but it doesn't because you, you don't feel the effects of it for a while. But as soon as the land started to feel the effects of it, the Lord sent word to Elijah Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Now, I know a few of you are ready to go, ooh, but most of you probably aren't geography nerds. There's something else happening here. Zarephath is in the land of Sidon. Nothing. Okay, so Zarephath is not in Israel. It's in the territory of Baal. And, and the thing that, that we don't understand in our modern world and modern mindset, every war in their time was a theological war. If, if Baal versus the Lord came up in a fight, the armies of both nations would fight, and whichever God was more powerful, they'd take land from the other. The gods worked in their homeland, not in other lands, unless that land chose to worship them. And here Elijah goes alone into Zarephath. Elijah, the prophet of the Lord, goes there alone 
into the pretty close to Sidon, which is the center where Ethbaal, the father of Jezebel, is from. And he goes there, and we find out immediately that they're dealing with the same drought as Israel. Baal is having trouble in his home territory. So Elijah rose, and he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he calls to her, and he said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called out to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And we might look at this and say, that's weird, right? I mean, if, if you just like walked into a city and asked someone for food, I mean, maybe it would work. Um, but in this ancient time, hospitality was the definition of, of how good a city was. And so if someone came into your city and asked you for something, you did everything you could to provide it. And so she right away went to get a drink for him. But when he asked for a morsel of bread, here's how she responds. As the Lord your God lives, so she knows he's not a Sidonian. I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And I'm actually gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. She's like, we're about to have our last meal. I'm not giving you anything. In the land of Baal, the god of fertility of soil, life and death, and rain and storms, they have nothing. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, you're not going to die. Go and do as, I, as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterwards make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Do not fear death. You're going to have enough food. The Lord will send rain. Oh, and so that happens. And here we see, with my janky checkmark, that the Lord proves fertility of soil over Baal in the land of Baal. After this, so, so Elijah winds up living with them for a while, and um, it, you know, they're, they're able to survive. And after this, there came a time where the, mistress, the son of the woman, the widow, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, "'What have you against me, O man of God?' You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. She thinks your God is causing my son's death. And so Elijah takes the son upstairs and lays the son in his bed and he cries out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and this is so important, and you'll see in a little bit, but the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Fertility of soil, life and death. After many days, so, so we're, we're, we find out we're three years later, after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. The famine didn't go away when Elijah left. It didn't follow Elijah. The famine was severe everywhere where they worshiped Baal. Now, um, super, super fast, like bullet point nerdy thing. There's this guy named Obadiah, and we meet him just briefly here. Um, and Obadiah is a servant of Ahab, but he fears the Lord. And we find out in just this little aside that we don't really have time for, but I'm talking about because it needs to be talked about just briefly. 
Ahab and Jezebel, when the drought comes, they decide we need to kill all the priests of the Lord. Because if the Lord brought the drought, if we kill him, Baal, or we kill his priests, they won't have enough power and Baal will prevail over them. And so they kill all the priests of the Lord, which is something you never did in that time. You never killed priests because you didn't want to take off their gods. But they did. But this guy, Obadiah, he actually saved a hundred of the priests. And we find that out in this side story where Obadiah meets Elijah as Elijah's coming back to meet Ahab. And Elijah actually says to Obadiah, hey, I need you to go tell Ahab I'm coming. Let him know so I can meet with him. And Obadiah says, I'm not going to do that, dude. And why he says that is he's like, you're going to disappear again. And Ahab is actually sent to every kingdom around here asking for you, making the kingdom swear by oath you're not there because he's been trying to kill you so much. If I tell him I saw you and I don't bring your body, he's going to be ticked. And Elijah says, no, I'm going to go talk to him. And so when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? Ahab's a jerk. Um, and Elijah answers, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Oh, he's talking trash. And so out of this, Elijah, who Ahab wants to kill, Elijah says to him, hey, send therefore and gather all Israel with me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. You may wonder, why did Ahab do this? And that is a great question. We know that the Lord's hand is guiding here. Because Ahab, I I would have expected, would just say, no, Elijah, I'm going to kill you. But that's not what happens. And I think Ahab wants to prove, once and for all, that Baal is the best god. And so they all show up there, and Elijah came near to the people, and he says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? And that word limping is such a bad translated word. The word behind it is like, Passover, it's the same language used for Passover, but it's this idea of how long will you go like, oh, maybe Lord, maybe Baal, maybe. It's, it's this idea of slow, non-methodical movement where you're not really getting anywhere. How long will you go limping between these two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. None of them said, you're right, we should follow the Lord. None of them said, no, we love Baal. Nothing. They all just stared. And so here, Elijah comes up with a plan and he tells them, hey, let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one for themselves, the 450 prophets of Baal, and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will do the same thing. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, it is well spoken or modern day. Okay, so we have this challenge. The 450 prophets of Baal versus Elijah, prophet of the Lord. And there's a whole lot going on here, but they're essentially going to build different altars, put their sacrifice on the altar, but not light it on fire. Fire was the sign of acceptance. The smoke and the burning was the sign of the acceptance of the God. And so they're going to let the God accept their own sacrifice. And it's not stated explicitly, but implicitly from the fact that they've already killed a bunch of prophets of the Lord. And really, when you look deep into it, when you look at the life and death nature of this, the prophets of the losing God would be killed. This was not something you did in the Middle East at that time. You didn't try and prove one God was real and one God was false. That went against the whole theology of, well, don't tick off the other God. 
But Elijah's saying either this God is the God or that God is. There's no in between. And so Elijah, um, I didn't think this would look very good up here, even though it's Labor Day weekend. I was going to get one of those aluminum, like metal chairs that has like the plaid weave on them, you know, like the lawn chairs. And I was going to plop down here because that's what I picture Elijah doing. Um, It's early in the morning at the start of this. And I think he's like in a bathrobe and he's a very hairy man. We don't have time for that. But I just picture him plopping down and saying, you guys go first. And so the prophets of Baal took the bowl that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, oh, Baal, answer us. And remember, remember, They think Baal is dead. So they're crying out to to Baal to wake up from death. But there was no answer. There's no voice. No one answered. And they limped around around the altar that they had made. They're they're walking slow. It's like a funeral dirge. It's like, I think this is Monty Python, but it might be Robin Hood Men in Tights where they do the E-O. You know what I'm? Some of you know what I'm talking about. That's, That's the imagery you should have here. Okay. So the prophets of Baal set up a sacrifice in the morning. They offered up solemn prayers, calling out to Baal. And at noon, Elijah plopped down in his chair. He mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Appropriate time to go, oh. Um, Really important note. If you're not using the ESV translation, there's a good chance that this says he's thinking or pondering here. Um, the word behind this is a hard word to translate. I choose to believe he's making a potty joke. Um, I, I, I think all the scholarly evidence goes against it, but sometimes integrity. Um, so if you learn nothing else today, this is a good aside. Do not worship anything that might leave you hanging to go potty. And, and let, me, let me take this more personally. Uh, we talked about this on our mission trip. Every time you go to the bathroom, that should be a sign I shouldn't worship myself. And you might say, like, okay, Matt, be done with the potty jokes. But, but seriously, like, we should, really, we should really not worship ourselves. And now some of you are going to say, well, Jesus, even though he was perfect, was in a human form, to which I say, well, you got Father, Son, and Spirit. And between the three of them, you would never be left hanging. So every time you go to the bathroom, it's a sign you probably shouldn't worship yourself. So Elijah mocks them. And we can go, oh, but what we also have to know here, if we want to go like really deep into how much he's digging in, we have to know that everything Elijah's saying here, the prophets of Baal go, it could be that. Really? That's what they believed. They believed the gods were just slightly more powerful humans with divine power, but were also, for all intents and purpose, still human. They hear Elijah say that, and the very next thing they do, they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with their swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. They're like, he's right, we need to get louder, and they start cutting themselves. They add human blood to the animal sacrifice that's already there. Because they're like, this is not good. It's noon now and nothing has changed. And Elijah's still sitting in his chair, smug. And so the prophets of Baal begin cutting themselves and crying aloud. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. This passage is about a God who listens. And Baal does not. The prophets of Baal kept crying out to Baal until the evening. 
They never received a response. I wonder, there were 450 of them. I wonder, did they, and I mean this, I wonder, did they do it in shifts? Was there a point where all of them were like, hey, we need everybody up here right now. Um, You've still got some skin we could cut. We need to do something. Like, I, I think there was probably a desperate moment when you're 12 hours into this process. And it's at this time, it's golden hour. It's the hour, it's the evening sacrifice time. It's the hour when the Instagram influencers have their boyfriends come take pictures of them at the sunflower fields. It's the most picturesque time of day. And Elijah finally plops up from his chair and he said to all the people, come, in, come near to me. And all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And, and we don't know about exactly what altar this is, but it's likely that under Ahab and Jezebel, there would have been an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on this mountain, and it was probably destroyed when they started worshiping Baal. And so he takes 12 stones, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. He's saying, know your roots, guys. Remember where our nation came from, the Lord that led us out of Egypt, that brought us here. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And then he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain... And it's like four-ish gallons, but it could mean a whole bunch of four-ish gallon containers. It could just mean four gallons. For the altar builders among you, you know that this is unusual. For everyone else, you didn't build a trench around an altar. But Elijah does this. And we're supposed to go, why would Elijah do this? And on top of that, he put the wood in order um, and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. So he prepares his sacrifice around this, on this altar, around this big trench that he's made. And then he said, fill four, water, or fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And some of you are probably thinking, that would not help start a fire. For the rest of you, it wouldn't. And the Israelites do it. And remember, remember the time they're in? Is this a time where they have a lot of water to spare? No, they've been in a drought for three years. And he says, do it again. Do it a third time. And so they do. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, for the first time in this story on Mount Carmel, he speaks to the Lord. The first time. Remember, from morning until now, the prophets of Baal, they're probably still wailing. They're thinking, we've got to figure something out. I'd like to think some of them stopped and then the older ones said, get back to work. But Elijah says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell down and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord he is God, the Lord, he is God. Finally, they're not going to limp around. Right after this, Elijah said, seize the prophets of Baal, let none of them escape, and they are slaughtered. And you may say, well, that seems harsh, but they weren't among those crying out, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. They were among those thinking, we got to get out of here. And there's a problem here. This can't be the end of the story because the Lord has not proven he can cause rain or storm. In fact, I think the Lord intentionally does not bring about rain and storm right after the killing of the prophets because he doesn't want it tied to human blood. 
I think he doesn't bring it down when that first thing happens because his display of he is the Lord, they need to respond to that before he's going to take that next action. But right after that, Elijah said to Ahab, go up and eat and drink. For there's the sound of the rushing of rain. And we, we don't understand what this means really. It's like, yeah, they've been out there all day. They're probably hungry. He's saying, go eat like normal. Get off of your famine drought rations. Go eat like normal. And so Ahab went up to eat and drink. And Elijah goes up to the top of that mountain and he bowed himself down on the earth and he put his face between his knees and he starts praying. And he has a servant with him and he tells the servant, go look towards the sea. And the servant goes and he looks and he comes back to Elijah and he says, there's nothing. And Elijah sends him down seven times. And it's on the seventh time he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And Elijah said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stop you. To go from to go from no rain to, hey, you better get home really fast. You're not going to want to be out in this one. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And it's here, the Lord has proven himself over Baal. He has fulfilled his word, and he has done everything he said he was going to do. And the people know he is God. And we finally get back to the point where the people are kind of doing what they're supposed to. Psych. If we had another hour, we would immediately go into the fact that Jezebel threatens to kill him. Elijah winds up on a mountain. Elijah winds up having suicidal thoughts saying, Lord, I'm doing everything I can. I'm zealous for you. The people say they're going to follow the Lord and immediately fall back in. It is such a depressing passage to read through the life of Elijah. But somewhere in it, we see that God is faithful to what God says. And it's so good to know that God is faithful. And it's so good for us to know that. But the cost of idolatry is not just when we turn away from idols, everything goes back to normal. The only man of God in this story that we see act rightly is so burned out at the end of it, he goes, let me die. And not like Jonah where it's like, I'm a jerk, but like Elijah is like, let me die. I am in such grief. I don't want to do this anymore. Lord, let me die. And the Lord lifts him up and takes care of him. What is the true cost of idolatry? As, as we close today, I, I, I want to tell you that the promise in this passage is that when we idolize things, the Lord will knock them down. The Lord will show us very clearly, your idols are not as great as me. Your idols are not worth hoping in. Only I am worth hoping in. And honestly, idolatry at its core is worshiping ourselves. No matter what we want to call it, we can say I'm worshiping someone else, but we're always worshiping ourselves and what we choose over our creator in whose image we were created. And what was the true cost of idolatry for Israel? This is where this passage gets so heartbreaking. The Israelites lived in a land, if you've, if you've ever watched Veggie Tales, which I don't suggest, but they talk about the promised land. It'll be so grand. We'll get our fill from the grill as long as we can stand. It'll be so great. Oh, we can hardly wait for we're going to the promised land. Hopefully you're familiar with that. It's sad that I know VeggieTales songs better than the Bible sometimes. And I don't like VeggieTales. But the point here is, it was supposed to be a land of abundance. It was supposed to be Garden of Eden 2.0, where God and his people could live together. And instead, they're on famine rations. They're in a drought. They're, they're living in disobedience to the Lord. And so the land that's supposed to provide their every need becomes a place of death and fear and destruction. The Israelites were commanded to live in a unique way, resting and celebrating rather than amassing wealth. The, the Sabbath was supposed, the Israelites were supposed to be unique in that time in that all these other nations like busted their butts. I think that's okay to say from the pulpit. They, they were working as hard as they could all the time, but never 
having enough. And the Israelites were supposed to be like, well, you're just following the wrong God. The Israelites were supposed to work on a cycle where they rested a whole lot. If you've ever, this is a serious thing, if you've ever ordered anything from B&H Photo, they follow the Jewish holidays, and if you order something at the wrong time of year, you might not get it for three weeks because they follow every Jewish holiday. It's really amazing that they do that, and they stay in business, and they have the best prices on, like, everything. But I, I bring this up because the Jews who were faithful to following God's commands were supposed to have such abundance, and were supposed to live in peace and rest. And finally, the Israelites were supposed to be God's holy representatives before the nations. But in this story, they look just like Sidonia. They look just like all the pagan nations around them. They're not provided for better. They're putting their faith and hope in the same things. Now, I hope you see that if you, if you just remove the Israelites and put Christians, when we follow idolatry, we're supposed to live in peace that God will provide us with everything we need. Everything we need. We're supposed to live trusting that the Lord will give us anything and everything that we could ever need. We're supposed to live in dependence to him. We're supposed to rest in him. We're supposed to fully rely on him. That's how we're supposed to live. And when we live a different way, we look just like those around us. We find ourselves working in these cycles where we're just as exhausted as everyone. How do we tell someone about the peace we have in Jesus when we're just as exhausted as them? when we're just as fearful of the same things as them, when we live in the exact same way as them. And they kind of have an excuse because they don't have the Holy Spirit. We don't have an excuse. When we find ourselves in idyllic worship, when we find ourselves seeking our own comfort, when we find ourselves looking to anything else except God to put our hope and trust in, we've got a spirit inside us that's convicting us and we're choosing to ignore it. The true cost of idolatry within the church is simple. When we worship anything less than God, do you know what we do? We take all of our resources away of doing the mission we were called to do, the Great Commission, to go share the gospel with all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Wow, I said go, I I said it wrong at the front. The front one is make disciples of all nations. That's what we're called to do. And we can't do that when we're spending all of our time rooting out our own idols. And you can say, well, the Lord can still work through people who are idolatrous. You're right, but wouldn't it be better to live in obedience? Wouldn't it be better to not sit around saying, well, he'll still work in me? Continually, idolatrous believers force faith communities to repeatedly reckon with sin that was already dealt with on the cross. That's the heart of this whole message. We do this in remembrance of him because he's already paid the cost And then when we live in idolatry, we basically say he's going to have to do it again and again. And he doesn't need to do it again and again. And praise the Lord, it's done. But instead of living like it's been done for us, when we do this, we force our faith communities, instead of moving forward together and living in the life that he has provided us through the death and resurrection of his son, we wind up working backwards. We wind up spending our time working on things, costs and prices that have already been paid. So as we close, um, in, in a moment, um, I'm going to do like a, like a minute of silence for you to think about this. And for some of you, um, I'm, I'm going to ask you to pray and just spend some time with the Lord on your own, and then I'll close this in prayer after about a minute. I, I, I want you to ask, Lord, am I worshiping you? Or 
you might already know, oh man, when I start this, I can't just say that because I know the answer is no. And I want you to take some time to repent. I want you to take some time to say to the Lord, Lord, my faith is in this instead of you. And repent and talk to him about it and then talk to someone else about it. If you're doing well right now, and some of you might be, some, some people the Lord is working in them and they are following in obedience and praise the Lord for that. If you're in that position, praise the Lord, pray for those around you, but also don't, don't get too high on yourself, okay? Please, don't do that. Some of you might be out there, I don't know, some of you might be sitting here thinking, I've never thought about any of this, I don't know what I worship, I don't think I worship the Lord, right? You may think, I don't know where I'm at with God. And if that's the case, I want to tell you the beauty of all of this as we struggle with idolatry, as we struggle with all of these things, the beauty in all of this is that when Jesus died, when his body broke and his blood was shed, he did so so that if we call him king, if we make him Lord of our life, we are set free of our sin and we can live outside of the idolatry that all humans struggle with. We can choose to worship him instead of ourselves. We can follow his example And so if you are here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you in this minute to call out to God to say, Lord, I I want to follow you. And and after this, come find me. I'll be somewhere. Come find Rich. Come come find somebody. Come tell somebody. We'd love to talk to you about that. Don't leave today without knowing that. But, But right now, I want to invite everyone to bow your heads and just spend some time in prayer and reflection thinking, Lord, am I worshiping you or what do I need to give up? Father God, you are the only source of life, light, and love. And it can be so hard to believe that because it's so easy to settle for lesser things. It's so easy to want to worship things on my own terms and to wind up worshiping myself because I I can feel good about what I understand and I, I know I'm not perfect and, and it, it sometimes feels like it's easier to, to just live in that imperfection and stay there. But Lord, you sent your son that we could have so much more. That we could have life and have it to the full. And we thank you that you are a God who tears down idols. And we pray as a church, we tear them down now. So that as we move into this fall, as we study in First John and look at the fellowship you desire for us to have with you and have with each other, I pray that we would set aside our idols now, the things that we choose to worship over you. We would lay down our lives that we might follow you better. And we would recognize that life in you is better than anything on our own. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to trust in that 
even when it doesn't seem easy, because it's not easy to follow you, Lord, but we know that you give us your spirit that we can do it. And I pray, Lord, for all of us here that, that we would be turning to you, we'd be repenting of our things that we're going to worship over you, we would be repenting of worshiping ourselves and we'd be turning to you. I pray for those who maybe don't know you, that through the, the word today and through the movement of your spirit, that they would say, I want a relationship with the God that tears down idols and replaces them with life. I pray we would all live as those who follow after you well. We would live in your peace and your rest and your comfort and your love. We would not turn away, but we would trust in you. And I pray if we are struggling with idolatry, that this community would lift us up. We would be a community that lifts each other up. But I also pray we would not become so distracted by that, that we lose sight of our mission to make disciples. And we thank you that you've brought us into that mission, that we can be a part of your work because of your work. It's in your name we pray. Amen.